Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Melbourne. Hello, everyone. There we go. Okay. Well, welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, Lauren, and the wonderful George Maxwell. (laughs) It is uh, Tuesday, the 13th of February, and we are in subscriber week. Woohoo! What does that mean? Well, look, it is exciting. That's what it means. Um, You are going to be hearing a lot of stuff about subscriber week on 3CR um, in the next seven days. Essentially, February is 3CR's subscriber month, subscriber drive month, rather. And what that means is that we are trying to get as many subscribers to the station as possible. And a subscriber is a bit different to just a regular donor because a subscriber buys a piece of independent media, shows support for a fantastic community radio station and like maybe your favorite show, (coughs) Tuesday Breakfast, (laughs) and gives you the right to be involved in the democratic processes at 3CR, including how the station is run each year by voting in the AGM. So 3CR is a community radio station by the community for the community. And in becoming a subscriber, you are a part of both of those communities. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Look, I think it's a beautiful thing. I know I get a subscription every year. What about you, G-Girl? Yeah, same. So um, we'll be playing a few more um, subscriber drive pieces throughout the show. Um, Please don't get sick of them and turn off. (laughs) What have we got for people today, Georgie? Today we've got a jam-packed program, as usual, with some really awesome interviews. We are going to play, first off, an audio that you did from a rally. Uh, from was, a, yes, I did record two fantastic women speak at um, a rally, or not a rally, um, just a panel discussion yeah. about racism, in, specifically in relation to policing, but also just anti-black racism in the Australian community. Uh, it was held by the Socialist Alliance last week, and the speakers are Abby Mag and Nawal Ali. So that will be great. Cool. And then after that, you've got a very interesting interview lined up, haven't you? Ah, uh, yes, you're being cheeky. I do. Um, <laughs> we will, we're going to be speaking with Bill Mitchell, who's a professor of economics at the University of New South Wales, about a potential um, new future direction for the left. So um, please jump on Facebook afterwards and let us know what you think about this idea. I think it's really interesting. And mm. then what you, who are you speaking with again? Remind me. After that, we've got Matthew Hopcraft, who is the CEO um, from the Australian Dental Association, mm-hmm. the Victorian branch. And we're going to talk about some recent issues regarding dental wait times and public dental health care. Interesting. And the government's refusal to 
provide or give the data to the public about those dental wait no, times. Stop. The yes. government is not being transparent. Or yes. Get out of town. <laughs> Would you believe it? I... It's very scandalous. <sighs> so we can ask him so some unusual. questions about that. Yeah, I mm-hmm. know. And after that, I'm very excited for this interview. I'm going to be speaking with Janine Leanne, who is a um, Wiradjuri woman, poet, academic, historian and teacher. And she's going to join us to talk about politics and creative writing and the relationship between the two in light of her new book, which is a book of poetry called Walk Back Over. Oh, my gosh. I love that. You can really inject politics into anything, can't you? Yes. Oh, I was going to make a Just Ask Barnaby Joyce joke, but I'll refrain. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's go into the audio from the, uh, the anti-racism panel. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, I recognize that we're on stolen lands, and I want to pay my respects to the elders past and present and emerging. Um, I just want to say that this is not a South Sudanese issue. This is a broader community issue. We did not ask for this to happen to us. Um, when we start holding politicians like Malcolm Temple and the, migration, the immigration minister and the police and the journalists and the media, when we start holding them accountable and we start questioning the things they do, the things they say, that's when the issue will start to resolve itself. Um, my name is Abby Mag. Hi. <laughs> um, I am located in the Werribee Wyndham area, for those who don't know. I run Our Voices Inc., which is pretty much an online and offline space for and by women of color in Australia. Um, I noticed that there isn't much women speaking tonight, and that's sort of some of the problems. They, this issue is seen to be a male issue, and it's not. It affects all of us, and our voices are very neglected, and that's what I'm trying to do, and I'm trying to increase our voices. Um, I have, I'm not going to speak long, actually. I have an event coming up this week on Friday. It's our first event for the um, space. It's called Sudo Girls Talk. It's an all Sassanese female lineup. And it's spoken words, musicians, um, poets who are amazing. And it's really an opportunity for us to really take back the mic and really speak for ourselves. Because we are capable of speaking for ourselves. Thanks. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owner of the land uh, in which we are meeting today. Uh, I pay my respects to the elders past and present and the elders of the community who may be here today. And I would like to thank everyone here today for making time to come and participate. Okay. Thank you. Making time and participate in this issue. And I would also like to thank the Socialist Alliance Melbourne for giving me this chance to just give my voice to the Sudanese community and talking about the criminalizing African communities uh, in Victoria. Uh, Sudanese refugee groups are one of the newly uh, uh, emerging communities in Australia and and also they are minority group. Their issues are visible in the social media due to 
due to the fact that many people in the community are struggling with settlement issues. Uh, the Sudanese community is one of the many of, uh, refugee communities that were forced to leave their homeland because of civil war. Uh, the second Sudanese civil war was become one of the longest civil war on record resulting in millions of deaths, massive starvation and displacement of more than 4 million people. Um, the civilian deaths uh, was the highest of any war since war, World War II. There were time, indeed, months and years on end when life was a matter of moment by moment survived. There was starvation, horror, a river full of corpses. The extraordinary for these people that people have done so much more than to survive. It is really clear you survive one day and you think that that's it. And you feel good, you feel happy about that. And that is all about you worry about. Some of them survive because of pure of luck. You such traumatize forever and you and if you are not strong enough, you will never recover. So is that true that having come from the trauma war Sudanese are more likely to violent, to be violent? I absolutely disagree. Just because you have suffered violence doesn't mean doesn't mean you seek it out. Australia could be good for them, good for us, but it's also bring new kind of trauma. It is in some ways more deeply wounding to arrive in a country and to be told you have rights, yet to get find that your your community vilified by the mainstream media, attacked by its most prominent columnist, and racially profiled by the police. This is, is a trauma you can't run from. Police describe Sudanese youth as having a warrior ethic, a lack of respect for women, and said they would openly challenge anyone of treating them regardless of potential consequences. They stereotype Sudanese and set up situation in which police were likely to approach African youth expecting terrible. The delivery by someone who does not have sufficient cultural competency is a gross professional negligence. Last month, I met with young people who go to job interviews, and the moment they see them, that they are black Sudanese people, they just say, sorry, we don't have job for you. And where is their future? Really, for these sort of kids, they are harassed by police in daily basis in train station. They are accused by people of being gang member. There is a tendency to assume that any group of Sudanese appearance is a gang. It's just terrible. Like many other youth uh, settlers, Sudanese 
are faced with many settlement issues and challenges, include racism and racial discrimination, employment difficulties, and inadequate or inappropriate support that made it even harder for them. But the media profiling has been more challenging factors alienating the community. Racism and discrimination are contributing factors to their challenges and children behaviors as many Sudanese uh, reported their child, their children being picked on and bullied on a daily basis at school and other public places because of their skin color and that is aggravated their settlement challenges. What called culture clashes was significant issue of Sudanese as well as other African origin communities who felt the impression of what they called culture imperialism by supposed multicultural host society. Differences in gender rule, integrating relation, work practices, education, religion, housing, even the use of public space uh, spread to be causing problems, issues around identity and belonging were found to affect this community's sense of well-being and integration. One of the good examples of our culture differences about our traditional parenting in that of any adult who found child misbehaving out in the street will discipline them. Their parent will, say, will not say anything. This is in contrast to the way it is in Australia, where you are not allowed to discipline somebody else's child, as you may be told that it is none of your business. This is was done positively in our culture because anything child can do without their parents is correctly by, by adults. After coming to Australia, most parents see their children leaving their cultures and shocking them. Sudanese parenting aims to nutrition children to be successful and respectful members of the community and societies. It is also about teaching them certain cultural values and identities, a task that achieving through teaching to instructing them, to instructing them as well as making sure that children are connected with their community, mem community members so as to learn from them. The traditional values are challenging. Pressing social issues surrounding refugees' life there are many overriding issues that facing refugees communities group that need to be considered when planning refugee settlement programs. These issues include consequences being conflict situation, displacement. Displacement alone affected individuals and refugees families uh, seriously apart from trauma and consequence of conflict as many refugees witness death and despicable acts. Displacement can lead to an increased isolation, poverty, family breakdown, and racism. Emphasize the importance of not only focusing on helping migrants to understand the, the expectation of their new environment, but the significance for the service providers and policymakers to have some knowledge.
and awareness of the delivery of the new settlers' uh, parenting construction and dominant of the host society. I'm not to see this in a narrative of one size fits all. I believe that learning and understanding the dimension association with raising children in two ways, processing, and that is for society standard to learn from migrant parenting approaches as well as tension and misunderstanding between parents. Their children, authorities continue to flare up during the, during the trans transition process. Uh, and nevertheless, I'm largely optimistic that these communities will, in the medium term, will make its place in Australia and be as accepted as arrival of that past having been. Thank you. So that was audio that Lauren took at a racism and politics panel last week. Yes, and it was slightly out of date. You heard Abby Mag discussing um, her upcoming event with um, Our Voices Inc. Uh, called Pseudo Girls, but that actually happened last Friday. So um, keep an eye out for some more Our Voices Inc. events coming up in the future. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. Coming live to you from the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra as part of the Sorry Day Convergence. And here comes Gilla. How you going, Gilla? How's it going, Gav? How's it going, uh, all you listeners down Melbourne? And you're missing a great time up here and uh, a great day. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio station bringing you coverage of community issues and events. We need your support. Call 9 419 8377 and subscribe today. We can't face the future now until we face the sorrow. I feel hopeful. I feel grateful. I feel sorry. As an Aboriginal person, let me shake your hand. Thanks very much for being here today. Thank you very much. No worries. And we're back at Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to launch into some community announcements now. Perfect. What have you got? So I mentioned this one last week, but I think it's worth bringing up again. Uh, this, today, I believe, marks the 10th anniversary of the National Apology to the Stolen Generations. It does. The Victorian Aboriginal Health Service is hosting an event to commemorate this anniversary in Swanbury today from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., so mm -hmm. quite soon. Lunch will be provided and there will be a special performance from Kutcher Edwards. Awesome. This, this event, actually, I believe you might be going to because I saw that you were interested in the event. Ah, oh, look at you. I've <laughs> been stalking your Facebook. The Night Heron, which is a little bar in Footscray, is hosting a fundraiser for Rise mm -hmm. on the 18th of February. It will feature... I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention some of these bands. You know how some bands' names you can't say on the radio because they're a bit... Naughty. It's featuring a lot of, um, to my knowledge, <laughs> punk. And yes, queer, doom, sludge, metal, pop, punk. Yes, all of the good stuff. <laughs> and I believe that is Sunday, is that right? That's the 18th? 
Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And it is $8 on the door and the money goes to Rise. Yeah. Um, and if you feel extra generous, you could also donate to Rise at riserefugee.org.au. The next event, and I believe we might have mentioned this a few weeks ago with the ASRC. Ah, yes. Their volunteering information evening, is that the one? Well, this is a different event, but just in terms of it Some being... people um, with lived experience of seeking asylum yeah. or people of a refugee background. Yes. Not um, thinking that the ASRC are the best representatives um, or organisation for their community. Mm. Um, yeah. So well, we'll again. tell you about the event in, in any case. Critical thinking yes. in every way. Yep. Yeah. So this one is at the Gasometer in Collingwood. They're hosting an event called Give a Funk, an ASRC fundraising event on the 22nd of February. Hip-hop, neo-soul, jazz, funk and creative beats will be served up. Doors open at 7pm. Tickets are 10 bucks online and 15 at the door. Hmm. That sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. The last event, event that I wanted to mention, I think that most of us are probably aware of this one. This is the Q&A Me Too special, which will be held in Melbourne on Thursday night, hosted by Virginia, Virginia Trioli. Sorry. And this is a, an interesting event that Lauren and I have been speaking yes. about before we went to air this morning. So, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are pretty, um, I don't want to say done with Q&A, but it feels like, it feels like maybe um for so many reasons but i i'm pretty um pretty upset about the me too special panel lineup um could you tell us who's on the lineup yes i can do that so we've got employment lawyer josh bornstein columnist janet albertson 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 from the australian I can never get that one right Journalist and gender studies professor Catherine Lumby and barrister Charles Waterstreet. Who, um, it should be pointed out, has been accused of sexual harassment and yep. sexual assault himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so notably, no survivor advocates, mm-hmm. no survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to, to our not knowledge, I suppose. Sorry? To our not knowledge, like we don't know 100%. Well, yes, that's true. But, um yeah. But I suppose what we were talking about earlier is that there is nobody on the panel um, that we necessarily ha- have been made aware of who can speak to the real impact of sexual harassment and sexual mm. assault um, on a person's life, um, especially with things that people may think are insignificant um, in the workplace, sexual harassment that is, you know, um, sometimes considered to be on the less serious end of the scale, but actually has a really detrimental effect to a person's mental health and well-being and sometimes physical health. Yeah. And there is not that representation on the panel, somebody to talk about that end of it. This is all very theoretical, and, and that's like it's great to have a gender studies professor and it's great to have somebody who can talk about it in an employment context, but um, let's stop pathologizing it. Yeah. Let's talk about how it really feels to be in the position of of the survivors. Yeah, so both they're missing people with the lived experiences to that might have something to share mm-hmm. and also people that have the work experience mm-hmm. and neither of we, we don't have any people who have those no things. So. Pretty frustrating. Yeah. Mm. Um so we might quickly go to a song. Yeah, so this I'm going to play the song that I mentioned earlier in the show when we had a little kerfuffle. <laughs> this is Jess Cornelius who is just such a beautiful singer. Um, and this is from her new EP, Nothing Is Lost. This song is called Difficult Things and People. Mm-hmm. 
heard a beautiful song by Jess Cornelius called Difficult Things and People. It is a beautiful song. And now we are going to um, have an interview with Bill Mitchell, who... um, Oh, hang on. Please bear with me, world. Bill, or William Mitchell, is... um, I think I mistakenly said earlier a professor at the University of New South Wales, but he is actually a professor of economics um, and the director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle. I apologise, my knowledge of New South Wales is um, appalling and um, I should be ashamed of myself. Um, So we're just going to get Bill on the line. Fantastic. Bill, are you there? Good morning, Bill. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. You're right. No worries. So um, let's dive right in. Late last year, your book, Reclaiming the State, was published. Can you explain to us the main premise of the book? Well, the main premise is... You, you've got to go back a little bit, but the main premise is that uh, the left of the political divide and the progressive sort of the activist movement around the world um, who project you know, left values, social justice, uh, uh, quality employment, decent wages and working conditions, uh, equity in terms of dealing with um, minorities, uh, which in Australia includes Indigenous Australians, and, and all of those issues, that's what I mean by the left of the political divide. The the argument that we mount is that uh, back in the 1970s, the, that particular political persuasion and the progressive movements that, are, that emerged from it, and I'm including the Greens here, by the way, uh, they got duped. And what I mean by that is that uh, within the academy, the uh, economics academy, uh, monetarism, Milton Friedman and uh, the sort of surge in free market thinking and the antagonism towards government intervention was uh, was emerging early 1970s. And the argument that was used to justify those ideas that the free market was um, prime, you know, the prime primacy of the free market, the uh, fact that you know the argument that the government should get out of the market and deregulate, privatise, and all of those things. Um, that was justified by by the claim that globalisation had rendered the nation state, um, and I'm just using words carefully here. I was going to say impotent, but that's a very male thing to say. Uh, had used, that. yeah, had used uh, uh, globalisation as an argument that state was now ineffective, mm-hmm. that the the idea of nation borders and, the, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a government being able to run 
independent policy was now impossible because global capital was everywhere and, and if they didn't like a particular government policy position, they would sell the currency off and destroy their nation and all of this argument. Now, you know, that was a very popular view in the mid, mid-1970s mm-hmm. and it became increasingly popular. And so, you know, you, you have the left, which in Australia is represented politically mainly by the Labor Party, allegedly, and the Greens for that matter, making statements continually that the government has to run fiscal surpluses, that they have to spend less than they receive in tax, that they can't run fiscal deficits, that is, spend more than they receive in tax, that uh, governments have to tighten their belts and uh, they have to deregulate and uh, 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 banking, mar- you know, financial markets and labour markets. Otherwise, the capital will go somewhere else. And all of these arguments. And what we argue that in the book is that the left has become completely fixated by those ideas, which which render their capacity to uh, deliver progressive outcomes, policy outcomes, when in government, uh, virtually impossible. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, the, the, the right of the political divide that were pushing these ideas into the political debate didn't never believe them themselves. They knew that to pursue their agenda, they had to use the nation-state because they knew all along that the legislative capacity and the currency capacity of the nation-state was very powerful and had to be co-opted and captured uh, by by the right to allow the right to get their political agenda operating. And so what you see is the rise of, in the 1970s, the rise of think tanks, you know, these right-wing think tanks. In Australia, we've got the Centre of Independent Studies, the... Uh, IPA uh, and that sort of thing. The Institute of yeah, Policy, yeah, IPA, mm. and uh, lesser-known, the H.R. Nichols Society. You know, and in America, there's hundred, there's mm. stacks of them, the Cato Institute, the, you know, all of these uh, right-wing think tanks emerge to pollute the debate, to pump out media that was uh, framing the dis- reframing the, the public debate in a way that made it look as though, for example, for the first time we started to get this idea in the public debate, in the media constantly, that... Uh, Unemployment was the problem, you know, mass unemployment. When you've got mass unemployment, we had always known that was a lack of jobs. And we'd always known that that was a systemic failure of the system to produce enough jobs. And we, we, we understood that to be because there wasn't sufficient spending in the economy, mm. whether it be public or private spending, to create the demand that would then in, uh, generate employment. Well, in the 1970s, we started to get this... Uh, narrative emerging that, oh no, it's because people are lazy, they're not looking hard enough, they're 
they haven't invested enough in their own uh, human capital, as as it was called. And that was a deliberate deliberate uh, strategy by the right to change who was you know to to alter the responsibility for solving unemployment. And because the right wanted unemployment, mass unemployment, because that suppressed, uh, uh, reduced the capacity of unions and workers to get wage increases. And that was when you started to see the redistribution of national income towards profits, which has been ongoing for the last 35 to 40 years. And so and I might just, sorry, um, I'm just aware that we're on a, a time crunch here a little bit. So when sure. you just mentioned unions and and these sort of collective movements and these protections for workers, your premise of reclaiming the state being that the left should harness that power of the state and harness that community organisational yeah. power once again. So is your essential argument that like where the nation state is not inherently bad and could be used as a vehicle for progressive politics? The, the, the inherent argument is that the right knew all along that the nation state was the vehicle that you had to work through to get to get political and social agendas operating. Mm. The left were duped into thinking that the nation state had become powerless. Yeah. And 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 our argument is that if we're really to get progressive future for, for, for our society, we've got to harness that power of the state for progressive reasons, uh, for progressive pursuits, and and wake up to, you know, the left of the political divide has to wake up to itself, and falling into these neoliberal narratives like, oh, we've got to run budget surpluses is just symptomatic of that they have failed to understand the capacity of the state to mm. be a progressive force. Yeah, and and that's where it's got to start. We've got to realise that the state is powerful. A nation state does not mean nationalism and xenophobia. It mm. can be a progressive force. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, something that I I really found interesting reading your work is your discussion of the nation state in the context of the European Union. So, um, you know, quite often um, the European Union is sort of adored by the left for various reasons, um, open borders and um, and sort of generally progressive social ideas, you know, um, loving BDS and that kind of thing. But, um, but you've been quite critical of the economic side of the European Union and I wondered what you thought that the left um, generally can learn from the EU and the, the, um, the nation-state context of that. Well, you know, there's two big debates in Europe in that context. The first one is run by my friend Janis Varoufakis, who's you know, formerly uh, an academic in Sydney, but now you know then then went on to become a politician in Greece, and now he's uh, wandering around promoting this DM25 movement. And 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 that argument is that there's a, dem- a democracy deficit in in Europe. Europe's been taken over by uh, technocrats in Brussels and Frankfurt, the you know the central bank and and the European Commission, and that what you need and the only way way to solve that, and they believe the hypothesis I mounted before that the nation state is now not the right uh, uh, thing to organise political movements. And so they're arguing that the only future for Europe is a pan-European democratic movement 
And in other words, they want to retain the European Commission but make it more democratic because at the moment it's just run by unaccountable technocrats. And uh, their arguments, you know, what you've, what you've seen in Greece, for example, is the, is the denial of democracy. And uh, you've seen an, an elected government, uh, Syriza, uh, taken over by, by technocrats in the, the IMF and the European Commission and delivering, you know, incredibly bad policies for the people which were, which were anti-democratic. Mm. And so that's the, that's one, that, that's the left that believes that Europe is a, a sophisticated, uh, uh, force for humanity. Whereas my argument is that, uh, the European Commission and the idea of the European Union overall is an anti-democratic concept. It's been infested with neoliberalism and it doesn't represent the, the interests of the people at the nation-state level. It's compromised the nation-states to the point where it's turned nation-states into vehicles, into virtually puppets, mm. which uh, deliver, deliver policy positions that are intrinsically bad for its citizens. And I'm thinking, you know, the, the elevated levels of mass unemployment and underemployment, the increasing poverty rate, uh, are symptomatic of the way in which the nation states have been used as puppets by the European mm. Union to deliver poor outcomes. And, and so our argument in that context is that the, the European member states, the countries that are in the European Union should exit as Britain is doing and reclaim their, their own sovereignty, both currency and political, and then cooperate politically with each other on grander issues like uh, climate change, rule of law, human rights. That's an that's an appropriate organising level then at the European level for those issues. But to to create full employment and to reduce poverty and to cre- restore equity in economic outcomes, the nation state is where it's got to be. Yeah, right. Um... And something else that I noticed in your writing, um, which, you know, in the context of everything else you talks about makes, makes a lot of sense, but, um, is quite different to a lot of the view of the left today. Um, you've been quite critical of what you see as the left's sort of movement away from, um, the Marxian class categories to struggles fought on the basis of identity politics. Um, could you explain why? Well, one of the one of the elements of this hypothesis that the left has really lost the focus on the main game. Uh, one of the the elements of that is that they've been diverted, and and they've been diverted into identity type politics. So now what you see is uh, you know a whole range of policy positions on uh, on race on ethnicity. On, on gays, on, um, you know, LGBTI generally, on, uh, gender, and, 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 on, and all of these issues have occupied, have become sort of organizing points for, for, for left politics. But the problem is that they are divide and conquer type issues. 
uh, and they don't address, and what the left have essentially done is abandoned the notion of class, you know, workers, workers' rights. And so, you know, you've seen, uh, uh, a, a dilution of the capacity of the left to, uh, to fight out key issues. Uh, and my argument is the key issues surrounding class and, and uh, uh, so what you've seen is left governments Hawke and Keating and then uh, Gillard and Rudd or Rudd, Gillard, Rudd you've seen them deliver policies that undermine workers' rights that undermine um, the capacity of trade unions to defend workers' interests that undermine the position of workers in the the society, while while pursuing issues like uh, uh, equ- you know uh, gender equity, uh, and failing to deliver on them too, and so our argument is that, or my argument in this context is that the the identity issues are very important. You know, same sex marriage was a fantastic step forward for for our country. But but you can't abandon intrinsic things like economic class as a, as an organising uh, framework mm. to pursue policy, and it's and symptomatic of this this view that the, you know on economic matters the left has become neoliberal, and they they assuage themselves by you know they 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 make themselves feel better by pursuing identity issues. But they've become diversions. They're, they're important, but they're diversions if you're abandoning the main game of of opposing neoliberalism is at the economic level. Mm. Well, I think that is a very interesting premise, and I would love to discuss it with you in more detail. But unfortunately, we are out of time for the interview. Um, That's okay. But to any listeners who would like to hear more about this or anything else that Bill's talked about today or just generally I think your work is um, very fascinating Um, Bill will be appearing at um, the new international bookshop to discuss his new book Reclaiming the State on Friday the 16th of February so this Friday at 7pm and you can buy tickets online or I think you can buy them at the door Bill thank you so much for joining us and all the best with the rest of your book tour you're welcome take care bye bye and so that was Bill Mitchell, a um, my, my apologies, sorry, Professor of Economics and the Director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle. And we will be right back. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Donate now by calling 9419 8377. Or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Welcome back to Tuesday Morning Breakfast on 3CR. You're in the studio with myself, Lauren, and Georgie. Um, so this is subscriber week on 3CR and that is very exciting because when you become a subscriber of 3CR Community Radio, you are buying a piece of independent media. You are becoming a part of the decision making community at 3CR. You are becoming a part of independent creative community voices. 
um, and it's really important. So you're going to be hearing a lot this week about the subscriber drive. Um, and if you want to learn more about it, jump online to www.3cr.org.au. Ali MC and the Footscray Community Arts Centre present Rohingya Refugee Crisis in Colour, an exhibition that delves deep into the heart of the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis. Featuring photography from both Ali MC and Rohingya refugees, a short documentary and stunning aerial drone footage. Head down to the opening at Footscray Community Arts Centre, 6pm on Thursday, February 8th. The exhibition runs from February 9 until March 10. For more information, visit footscrayarts.com. A 3CR supporter. And now we are going to hear a song from one of our Tuesday breakfast favourites. Rather, This is Sampa the Great with Female. So that was Sampa with a great tune called Female. We're going to go now to a conver- we're going to have um, a conversation with Map- Matthew Hopcraft, who is the CEO of the Australian Dental Association, the Victorian branch. Hi, Matthew. Hey, George, how's it going? Well, thank you. Thank you for speaking with us today. Uh, happy to. Can you talk us through what's been going on in terms of information about public dental wait times? Sure, George. So a a report came out uh, just last week from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and they've been looking at public dental waiting times across the country and we're concerned here in Victoria and as as are dentists all around the country about the the way that public dental waiting lists have been growing. So in Victoria now, the most recent data in the report from the Institute of Health and Welfare showed people were waiting on average for 19 months to access public dentistry. one wow. of the problems we, we, we highlighted when that report came out was that it didn't include the most recent data for Victoria. And we know that um, public dental waiting lists have probably gone up since then. So we're really, I guess, sort of calling on the government to, to take the issue of dentistry a little bit more seriously because we know poor oral health is affecting a lot of people and we're really trying to, to call on them to um, you know, look, at, look at how they manage public dental waiting lists in Victoria. Mm. Matthew, would you mind speaking up just a little bit? It's a bit difficult yeah, to sure. hear. Thank you. So, and they justified that omission um, by saying that there were data quality concerns. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the department uh, who collects the data were a little bit concerned about the data quality. Now, we don't know what that means. Um, mm. And one of the things that we, we do is we go back and we ask those questions of the department. So we're trying to get some information um, there was a point in time a number of years ago where the public system would put out really good data on a regular basis. And if you were living somewhere in Victoria, you could go onto a website and find what the waiting list times were for your particular area, your particular community clinic, and that data doesn't exist uh, in a a public way anymore. And we think that the public should have access to that. You should be able to find that information. It should be readily available to help people uh, make good decisions about their health. Yeah, absolutely. And can you tell us a bit about where the funding for public dental health, where, where does it come from? Is it divided between state and federal, federal governments? Yeah, so predominantly uh, each state government runs their own public dental system within the state. 
um, and, and our government here in Victoria is putting in about $226 million a year, which you know seems like a lot, but there's about two two and a half million Victorians who are eligible to use the public dental waiting system. So that adds up to roughly $90 per, per person, nowhere near enough. The federal government does put in some money to, to various schemes. They have a really good program that, that came in a number of years ago for kids, um, and it's funded through Medicare. Um, we need to get out and promote that a lot more because there's a lot of kids who would be eligible to use that, and they can use that in, in the private sector with, with the normal private dentist or in the public sector, and we need to, to get more people accessing that scheme. Mm. But predominantly the waiting list issue is a, is a state government responsibility. Yeah, and so what has the Australian Dental Association, what, what are their recommendations in terms of moving forward? Well, we've put in a submission to the government. They're working, obviously, through their budget at the moment, and, and you know we put a submission into them saying that one of the areas they need to look at very closely is, is the overall amount of funding that they're putting in because clearly there's not enough to meet the needs of the, the large number of people out there. We had some specific advocacy points in there for the targeted groups. We're particularly concerned about older people living in, in nursing homes uh, who aren't receiving a lot of care. We've put in a recommendation about um, survivors of, of family violence who often have dental problems. Mm. I think the government will work with us on some programs that we've got, uh, got there as well. And it's really just about trying to have a conversation with government to, to say, we know when people suffer from poor oral health that it impacts on their general health as well, it impacts on their well-being. There's evidence that, that shows that you know, people with poor oral health have difficulty finding employment. So there's a lot of really good reasons why we want to make sure that people have good access to, to dental care. Um, and uh, you know, that's really part of the role of government. To, to look at their public system. Yeah, and that's such an important point that you mentioned that it does or that it might affect certain groups more than others and also that it is something that impacts your health as a whole, not just it's not just about teeth, it's about everything. Absolutely, you know, so whether it's whether it's poor health, poor oral health leading to poor nutrition which then makes it, you know, more likely to have health problems or there's there's some very strong links between gum disease and heart disease or between gum disease and diabetes. Uh, and so if we're able to improve someone's oral health, we actually have a really good impact on their overall health. So it's not just a problem of saying, oh, look, they're only teeth, don't worry about it. No, they're only teeth, they're actually a really important integral part of your overall health. Yeah. And another stat that I found quite interesting from your media release was that 40% of the care delivered in Victoria's public dental sector is emergency care. Is that something that um, there is a need to get away from that sort of um, treatment or crisis care as opposed to prevention care? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you've picked up on one of the really key issues there, George. Because the, the system is not funded adequately, we end up with this, with this sort of vicious cycle where people are waiting long times for care. You know, they're waiting up to 19 months for some general care and for prevention, and we know these diseases can be prevented. And so while they're waiting, the situation deteriorates and deteriorates until it becomes an emergency, they're in significant pain, they need something dealt with immediately and the public system is very good if you have an emergency you will be seen very very quickly so you're not waiting 19 months for an emergency but the problem is when they start focusing on people who need emergency care it means that people who are waiting for their general treatment end up waiting longer 
So it's this just this vicious cycle of people waiting for too long, suddenly needing emergencies, and so the emphasis very much 40% of care being delivered around emergency. And the, and the dentists and the, the staff who are working in the public sector doing an amazing job really trying to manage all of these complex problems. Um, so, we, yeah, we, we really want to try and push away from this emphasis on emergency care and get people in much more regularly for general care to prevent the problems that are occurring. Mm. And is, is Victoria, how, how does it compare in comparison to the other states? So the waiting list times in Victoria are probably longer than in any of the other states, barring maybe the Northern Territory and, and possibly Tasmania. Um, so the situation seems to be seems to be much worse. Um, one of the one of the issues that we're pushing the government for is that um, Victorian dentists in the public sector are paid on average about forty percent less than uh, dentists in the other states. Oh wow! So there's a, there's a huge problem there around being able to attract and retain really high quality clinicians to work in the sector to provide all of this much needed care. So not only are we saying we need to boost the funding to get more dentists into the system to provide more treatment. There's also um, an issue around the, the, the conditions that they're, that they're employed with as well. So mm. we think that there's still a little bit more work for the government to do in this area. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like there's a, a whole lot of things that need to change. And uh, it correct. probably starts with actually releasing data to the public so we can know exactly what's going on. I, I think you're absolutely right, George. I mean, I think the more that people understand the situation that they're in have, and have transparency of information, uh, it makes our lives as, as, I guess, consumers of healthcare better uh, to be able to see what's out there and what's available for us. Um, and then it makes it, it, it easier for us to advocate to government about where the areas of need actually are. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Matthew, and for informing us on the situation in terms of public dental health. It's been great to have you. Thanks for having me on, George. Have a great day. You too. Bye. That was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Very important topic. And you have another interview coming up soon? Yes. So we might, maybe we should play a song. Should oh, we play a song? I definitely think so. How about something by your fave, No Name? Yes. Yes? Sounds good. All right. Uh, well, I'm just queuing it up. Um, do you want to quickly just comment on the crazy headlines of the newspapers we just picked up? This oh, morning? wow, yes. <laughs> this has been an interesting topic of conversation. Every single paper today is focusing on the scandalous Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> so scandalous. <laughs> so he's, um, every photo from the Australian to the Age to the Herald Sun shows Joyce kind of looking a bit, how would you describe him? Glum. I think glum. that's glum. Got his hands in his face. Oh, highly recommend uh, getting a glimpse of the Daily Tally as well, if anybody listening can. Um, oh, yeah. What was that headline? It's a photo of uh, Barnacle holding a pot of beer, and the headline is Barnaby fails to pass the pub test. So, you know, read into that what you will, people. Heard it here first from the <laughs> tally, and now we might go to something a little more palatable. So tell me what you call me when I'm cold All right, and that was the wonderful No Name um, with a track, um, whose name I've forgotten, Sunny Duet featuring The Mind. 
And now we are lucky enough to be joined in the studio by Helen Gwillem, one of the 3CR committee directors. So welcome, Helen. Thank you. Morning. Um, and maybe you could start by telling us what you do at 3CR and how long you've been involved. Yeah, so at the moment I'm a member of 3CR's Committee of Management, which is sort of the oversights the day-to-day management of the station on behalf of all of the members. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also a member of the Projects Committee, so we work on funded projects where we might go out, well, Beyond the Bars is probably the best well-known one, which yeah. um, we support each year. Um, I also coordinate uh, with staff and other volunteers each year um, a broadcast we have all day on International Day of People with Disability. Awesome. So that's what I do at the moment, and uh, I've been a past programmer on Earth Matters and Friday Breakfast. Awesome. What a resume. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's over some years. It sounds like I was busier than I was. <laughs> so you have very kindly joined us during Subscriber Drive Week, which yeah. is a very big week at 3CR. Yes. Um, what does, yeah, why do you think membership is so important? I think it's important to, to join communities that you support and you want to see grow and be supported. For 3CR, for me, has been a very important place where I see the kind of communities I, I want to live in. You know, I see people who are different and supporting and sharing different cultures and experiences and different concerns and, and different campaigns but able to work together mm-hmm. in a really cooperative way to, to make change. And, yeah. and, and that's important to me. And I think if, if you want to see a different type of society or if you just want to maintain the one you've got, you've got to join in. Yeah. And 3CR's role in not just um, maintaining and supporting its community members, but also being the independent voice for those communities in a media landscape that just you would never hear those voices otherwise. It's mm. just it's just so important. It needs our support. And if you listen to 3CR and if you're involved in progressive community activities, you need to support them. And really, when it comes down to it, taking part's great, um, being at the events, coming and talking on the air. But we also need to keep it running. So so membership is, is a really important thing. It, it, it isn't just the money, but it is actually being being standing up and being part of something. Mm, yeah. Um, and so it's, um, it says on the all of the literature that um, becoming a member of 3CR gives you the right to be involved in the democratic processes at 3CR. Could you explain a little about what that means? Yeah, so everybody who is a member of 3CR, um, we have different groups of membership. There are affiliate members, which are organisations that have shows and um, have become organisational members of 3CR, their affiliates. There are members who, who listen, um, who, who pay a membership fee. And then there are also the people like yourself and like myself who have been on air who are also station worker members. So we've got different categories of membership. But basically what it boils down to is if you're a member of 3CR, you have a right to stand to, to, to join our, our governing bodies, basically, and to vote. So we have the overall body that it represents everybody at 3CR, all of its different... Um, affiliate groups and community groups and, and um, volunteers is called Community Radio Federation. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you remember, you get to have a vote through that. Um, and you, you can stand, so the elections are coming up soon. If you look at the website, you'll see information about that. And you should have had, um, as part of your subscriber letter, information about standing for Federation. And then from Federation, there's a smaller kind of subgroup of that that's elected to Committee of Management, which really does the day to kind of year-to-year management. Federation makes the big decisions around how three, we want 3CR to run, the constitution, the big policy issues, mm-hmm. whether we, you know, who, who joins um, as affiliate groups. So the Federation's really the major representative body for everybody who joins 3CR. 
Um, and then Committee of Management, which I'm on, is the kind of operational governance sort of oversight, and um, that's about 15 people. And we all represent affiliates and listeners and volunteers as well. Mm-hmm. And we, we try to represent everybody in the station, um, and we do that by, you know, to kind of keep in touch with everybody, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. There's always people running in and out of the station. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and just a really simple question now, um, how much does it cost? Depends, but um, if you are waged, um, it's $75 for the year. Uh, there's a solidarity membership of $150, um, so if you're an organisation or if you, you're able to, to contribute that much, that would be fantastic. And there's also a $35 concession and pension rate um, if you're unable to, if you're not working. Um, so it, it's, it's not... Um, necessarily affordable for everybody but it's it's so valuable Um, we we do really need everyone's support to keep somewhere like 3CR running and and open and and sharing what we do with all of our communities awesome thank you so much for joining us Helen you're welcome and have a fabulous Tuesday will do thank you and now we're going to hear um, what shall we play we will play um, a song by the very wonderful Lauren Hill just heard the beautiful Lauren Hill. Oh, What's that track called? Dream Girl, X Factor, oh, every time. One of the best. Oh. <laughs> and um, so you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR. We have the pleasure today of being joined in the studio by Janine Lane, who is a Ruadri activist, writer and teacher from the Murrumbidgee River. Hi, Janine. How are you today? Good morning, George. I'm well. Thank yeah. you. Yep. <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure. Yep. So let's just get stuck into it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up in Gundagai? Yes, thank you. Um, well, I was actually born in Wagga in 1961, which is on Wiradjuri country, but uh, my family were from around Gundagai near um, the Murrumbidgee River. Gundagai is a really important place. It's where the river changes. That's a Wiradjuri word. It means the stream goes up, flows up, and changes direction there. Um, look, I had a pretty sheltered childhood. Um, I mentioned the 1960s and 70s. This is pre-anti-discrimination um, act and pre-referendum. I actually started school the year that the referendum was held. Um, I think I had a pretty sheltered childhood till I was seven. Um, but my first education, my earliest education was at home, outside looking at things and noticing small things and the movement of the seasons and the changes of colour on the land and what grows at different times. Listening to the weather is something I was always told, listen to the weather or feel the weather. And listening to stories was a big part of my home education and all stories are important, I was taught. And also I was raised by two aunties and a nana. And the two aunties that raised me did go to school up until about one, possibly 12, the other um, a bit older. Um, and so they were interested, those two were interested in reading because it led them into other people's stories, like Whitefellas stories. Um, and so along with learning to be Aboriginal and learning about all the 
things on my land. I learned how to read and write at home by the time I was about five. Um, before I sent, was sent to Western school and I was encouraged to write at home and when I was a small child on long hot days or freezing days, like you get out there in the Wiradjuri, depending on what time of year it is, I sometimes used to whinge that I had nothing to do and my auntie would get me this old bread paper that used to get in the 1960s and say, go and write a book or go and write a story. <laughs> so I guess I've been an obsessive chronicler ever since and <laughs> kept journals and... Um, always thought little things were important. I was, we were taught to look for little things and that it's little bits and pieces of stories that build a big story. Um, and I think going to school was a real shock to me um, because I realised for the first time that I was different and not every home was like my home and not every family is like my family. And that whiteness is actually normal because I didn't ever consider myself any other way than normal till I went to school. I was quite lucky to be sheltered up and, until that time. Um, but from the moment I walked in the door with every other Aboriginal child, I think um, you do know you're different. Um, and it seems to not matter how loving our families are or how smart we might be, um, you're labelled from then on and... Um, you tend to be part of someone's deficit mentality. Um, so growing up in um, the 60s and 70s around Gundagai, and I left in the early 80s, um, I have to say it was extremely formative, but I'm really close to the land around there. Mm. Yeah. And you talk about a lot of these uh, themes in your book, uh, in your novel Purple Threads, which tells the story of a young girl growing up with her sister and her strong, wise and incredibly loving aunties and nan. And um, there are several examples of, of racism that the protagonist Sunny experiences by her teachers and fellow students. How important are these themes around racism and um, feminism in the story? Yeah, look, they're really important, but <coughs> probably not necessarily in the way that racism and feminism are not, uh, uh, sorry, are conventionally understood or defined. Um, in this, certainly, racism and feminism, I wouldn't say they drive the story because as an Aboriginal person, I, I don't want to reduce myself or any other Aboriginal person to, to the sum total of all the racist experiences we've had or the bad behaviour that we may have had to put up with. Um, but certainly they are a big part of the story and cultural understandings and groundings of what feminism means and the changing face of racism I think are really important to this story. Um, and, and what shapes us as people is our home culture. I became conscious of that at a very young age. Um, and with feminism, for example, black women in Australia never were theoretically until the late 1960s and you know this is something I witnessed really acutely and I've written about this in an earlier volume of my poetry called Dark Secrets. Um, in the late 60s um, um, through the 60s when I was born and certainly before that um, black women in Australia weren't equal with the white settler women and in reality today many black women in Australia um, still aren't. So the feminist movements begin on different premises 
And, for example, like first and second wave feminism is often labelled, and for good reasons, as a largely um, white movement because the aims and objectives and the history that it grew out of were quite different to what we wanted as women. And my definition of feminism as an Aboriginal woman is um, is that to advocate and to stand for the rights of women with whom you share the same culture, socio-cultural and historical moment. Um, so feminism is caring about women in a particular context. And in the 1960s and 70s, black women in Australia were fighting to have a home mm. and to be able to keep and raise our family, to be able to marry who we wanted, to have that union recognised and to have freedom of movement, among other things. Um, which is a, a quite a different set of causes yeah. to to what what the uh, white stream feminist movement wanted, um, and so it has to be re- remembered too that some of the biggest oppressors. This comes out in this in Purple Threads, comes out in my earlier volume of poetry, Dark Secrets, comes out in my latest volume, Walk Back Overlook. Some of the biggest oppressors of Aboriginal women in this country have been white settler women. Um, and that doesn't mean as a woman you don't advocate for the rights of all women in different situations other than yourself but I see that as having been the failing of some feminist movements so far is the narrowness of the aims and, but it's essential if you're advocating to people, for people to recognise the socio-cultural contexts of those you're advocating for and what their aspirations and aims grow out of the history that they grow out of the different histories that have formed people and not just assume that everyone will want the same Mm. Um, and on racism too yes there's many graphic incidents in the book there's one in in purple threads there's one in the schoolyard and in in walk back over as well um, where children are quite racist i think Um, and it always raises the question of how 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 people teach their children to become racist at, at a very early age because racism is learned behaviour. Um, so, yeah, they're very, very strong themes in yeah. the book. I'd say the strongest theme in the book is voices of women um, and the women's history, but it's certainly Aboriginal feminism as it existed in that context and in my family has a big part to play yeah. and as does to be able to read the, the different faces of racism. I just, I loved all of the conversations with the aunties and the nan and just seeing, and seeing that love and how they, how they look after each other and, and that strength I think was really, um, really shows through reading the book. That was an important part of education and is a, is a really important part of the cultural education I think of Aboriginal children per se is lots of talking and listening and learning through talking um, and also on Purple Threads um, when reading that I think many many astute readers notice the precarious situation of the Aboriginal children my sister and I in this case in the book because this book is set right in the heart of what was officially known as the Stolen Generations I mean we all know that the Stolen Generations have been going on since 1788 but there was an official time between 1905 and 1969 and where all Aboriginal families were vulnerable and I th- my aunties and my 
Nan saw us as particularly vulnerable because we were being raised by aunts, a, a nan, a single mum, um, and a white father who was my, my white father was largely absent. So my sister and I don't know this because there's incredibly strong women there. But when you look at back into this book from an adult perspective, you can see all the stress and all the trouble that the women are going to to protect these children mm-hmm. and that's not an unusual situation yeah so we we are closely coming to 8:30 so we might have to um have one one more final question mm-hmm. which one do you think is most important i think i think i would like to ask about how you um how you engage with politics through creative writing and um and and let's talk about that in relation to your new um, book of poetry, Walk Back Over. Yeah, look, it, for me, um, creative writing, poetry, um, prose, but poetry in this case is is a really important um, is the only way really for me to engage with politics. Because I said this at the launch, it's the best way to tell the truth, and there's a lot of hard truths out there about the nation that people thought they knew. And as a teacher, it's it is um, certainly I meet a lot of settler people who've come a long way, but I meet a lot who haven't as well. Mm. Um, and so we're coming up to the tenth anniversary of the apology of the stolen today. Today is the tenth anniversary, and you know there was an official policy for the stolen generations, um, but we all know that they began in 1788 with the capture of a man called Arabanu in 1788 and Philip captured him for this purpose and the orders were capture a native so he can learn from them so poetry I think in this way reminds us that even though time might have moved on things don't always improve Mm. Um, and poetry can remind you of things very very starkly Um, and I asked that question um, in this poetry, ten years on from the apology for the stolen generations, uh, Noongar lawyer Dr Hannah McGlade reminded us on the ABC just last week that Aboriginal children are still ten times more likely to be taken, removed than non-Indigenous children and more children are being removed now than during the official stolen generations. And poetry, I, I asked that question in one of the poems I wrote called Lady Mungo about the stealing of the dead. Why are they still stealing us, dead and alive? Mm. And that question's still on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Can we ask in the final um, minutes of today's program, uh, would you do us the pleasure of reading one of your poems? (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to read this poem called White Fellas, which is where the title from the book, my latest poetry book, Walk Back Over, comes from. This poem was written in one afternoon... Um, but is the culmination of a lifetime of things I've heard white fellas say over time about Aboriginal people. White fellas. White fellas have a license to stare in car parks, foyers, forums, gatherings at any bodies who don't look white. They're famous for hitting black fellas with questions like, where do we come from, even though they belong to the oldest diaspora of all. White fellas are experts on Aboriginal affairs, crafting ready opinions. In particular, white men in the academy seem to know a lot about Aboriginal women. 
Sometimes, Aboriginal people amaze white fellas if we go to university, encouraging us to be more like them. But white fellas are surprised if we are too much like them. And they say, why do you call yourself an Aborigine when you just live the same as us? White fellas know Aborigines are sporting. It's all about natural ability and intuition. White fellas succeed through hard preparation and structure. Aboriginal sports stars are a challenge for white coaches because we don't discipline up. White people are happy to say rugby league has done good for Aboriginal people, even though Aboriginal people have done more good for rugby league. Aboriginal people excel at boxing, then sometimes they're happy to call us Australians. Whitefellas hope that the gap in health, education, housing, income, life expectancy between black and white Australians will close soon, but they still put shopping bags onto bus seats between themselves and the nearest Aborigine. Maybe that space needs to close first. Perhaps the biggest gap of all is across the grey matter between whitefellas' ears when they think of us. Maybe they need to build a bridge or a road to traverse that chasm. They like building things, white fellas. When they've built that span, they should walk back over it again to make sure it's solid, not just tell us it's so. We're over promises. White fellas feel sorry for us because we have lost our culture over time, but apparently age doesn't weary theirs. They call change progress. White fellas study true Aborigines in the bush and bring back knowledge to cultureless urban mobs like me. But we're a pain, us urban mobs. Too many questions and white fellas know real Aborigines don't ask. If we go to university, we should take courses in Aboriginal studies because white fellas know that with their guidance, we'll be good at it. Maybe we can help other Aborigines. White fellas say Aborigines don't work in Australia. Truth is, Australia doesn't work without Aborigines. This country would be broke without black fellas. Advice is a one-way street in colonial Australia, and white fellas never seem to tire of that well-worn track. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thank you. What a huge day we've had. Very honoured to have had you here with us. And um, just on our final note, don't forget to subscribe to Tuesday Breakfast, and you can pick up Janine's book... Um, walk, walk, walk back, back over. over. Whereabouts can we it's buy it? It's published by Cordite Press, and if you jump on and go to the website, you'll find it there and lots of other good books. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks you. Have We'll a great see you next Tuesday. week.